California is set to send the personal information of gun owners to researchers. The NRA reschedules its oversight meetings and an interview with the head of San Diego County Gun Owners. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com. I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. I feel like when I say contributing writer, it comes out weird. Every time I listen back to it, by the way, uh, Jay, I don't know. What do you think, Jake? I, 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 contributing, like, it sounds like Reuter. I don't know why. I haven't noticed it. Jacked on up recordings. on steroids. <laughs> I know, I, maybe because I edit the podcast, I'm always noticing it. <laughs> sure. Noticing the weird things that I, or the weird inflections in my voice. Maybe it's that, like, Delco Philly accent creeping in a little bit. Could be. Um, anyone who watches uh, Mayor of Easttown. Contributing Town, Wooder. <laughs> yeah, I guess contributing water, water, uh, yeah, hoagies and and uh, all the all the good stuff. Uh, I think they call it uh, hoagie mouth is the common yeah. term for it in Philly. This uh, sort of uh, elongated O's that we have up there. Um, but anyway, uh, Jake is here again with us. Uh, we're gonna uh, have a good episode this week. We've got uh, Jim Garrity. No, that was last week. Boy, <laughs> this week we have the head of the. Uh, San Diego County uh, gun owners, uh, which uh, is an even more insightful conversation, I think, is she gives us, uh, uh, her name's Wendy Hoffman, she gives us insight into uh, their activism there at the local level, so we're getting a little more granular this week um, uh, in our in our interview, and I think it gets really interesting, frankly. But before we do that, uh, I want to talk about the week's uh, gun news. This week, uh, we found out, right, uh, that the NRA is uh, has scheduled their oversight meetings. You know, they had to cancel their annual meeting, which is the big the big event that usually draws uh, you know eighty thousand NRA members to a city for a big convention. There's exhibit halls and concerts and speeches from politicians and all this stuff that goes on. And then on top of that, there's also the members meeting and the board meeting, which which are where members and directors have an opportunity to, you know, give input on how the organization is being run, offer, um, you know, resolutions to, uh, on different issues on how to change things or how they want to see reforms happen or whatever the case might be. Uh, and so they have to do those, the annual meeting, they don't have to do by their bylaws, right? They don't have to have the exhibit hall or, uh, the, the political speeches, but they have to do these meetings. Uh, and so they've rescheduled them for Charlotte, North Carolina, on October second, which is uh, so just a it's about a week from when this podcast is going to first come out, uh, at least for the members. Uh, by the way, if you aren't yet a member, uh, you should join because you get this podcast a day early, and you'll also get access to a bunch of exclusive content uh, written by me and, and Jake over at thereload.com. But um, yeah, so so the. The meetings are, are going to take place, the members meeting and the board meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina uh, on October 2nd. Uh, that's the big uh, news of the week. They got these oversight meetings and they're, they're coming at a time where uh, the attorney general, New York, Letitia James, who's uh, you know called the NRA a terrorist organization in the past, even before she became attorney general while she was running, she ran on a, a campaign of, uh, of shutting them down. And now, well, she's trying to do exactly that in uh, this case in New York, trying to shut down the organization, dissolve them, and 
and uh, well, spread out their assets to other groups um, if she's successful in shutting them down. Now, of course, uh, behind that effort are some very serious allegations of uh, financial malpractice or malfeasance uh, from top NRA executives, including CEO Wayne LaPierre, uh, the general counsel, John Frazier, uh, and then the former treasurer, Woody Phillips, and uh, former chief of staff, uh, Josh Powell. Uh, they're all, all four of those are named specifically in the suit, but she she's arguing that the those executives essentially uh, took millions and millions of dollars of NRA money over the last uh, several years and diverted it towards their own personal expenses, oftentimes for luxurious pers uh, you know, private flights or you know, uh, wardrobe or uh, trips to exotic locations. So the allegations are very serious and they're very detailed. She put in a 187-page uh, amended complaint this week, or not this week, just a few weeks ago, and the NRA actually uh, filed its uh, answer to that new amended complaint where they asked for a number of the charges to be dismissed um, and, you know, again, attacked. A lot of it was very similar to what they've said in the past about the case, which is, you know, again, that James is a political opponent who's out to shut them down and she's trying to silence their their membership and uh, she, you know, so they're accusing her of having political motivations and uh, um, and that the NRA has made reforms to correct any mistakes that did exist within side any any sort of uh, corruption that was there or uh, you know any mistakes that were made they claim been, have been rectified even though obviously two of the four people named in the Attorney General's lawsuit are still uh, employed by the organization, including the executive vice president, CEO Wayne LaPierre, who is obviously the head uh, and the face of the NRA, um, is still certainly in charge there um, and enjoys really uh, broad support from the board of directors from everything that we can see outside of some dissent uh, from a number of, of directors over the last couple of years. The majority of the board that shows up and Frankly, a lot of the board don't show up to board meetings, um, but the ones that do overwhelmingly are still supportive of Wayne. Um, but yeah, so what, Jake, uh, it's been an interesting uh, week for, for the NRA. I think that it's going to be more interesting next week to see what comes of these oversight committees or hearings, if, if anything. Right. Right. Um, it should be interesting, the board meeting as well. Um, you know, in years past, you've seen sparks fly and arguments happen over the direction that the NRA is taking. And so in light of these, this lawsuit and these scandals, it'll be interesting to see if anything happens, you know, at this meeting. Like you said, most of the directors that show up to these meetings are generally in favor of Wayne and will probably, you know, stand behind him. But it should be interesting to see if anything comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how many people show up. This is actually, uh, you know, now some of this, Obviously, it's hard to blame the NRA to a certain degree. They had to cancel their annual meeting where these were supposed to happen uh, because of rising, you know, incidents of COVID in Texas sure. where they were going to have it. Uh, and so now they've rescheduled it relatively quickly here. It's only been a couple weeks 
and they're already going to have it in a different city in Charlotte. So it's you, you, you wonder how many people are, how many actual NRA members are going to be able to make the arrangements to show up at something like this. Um, yeah. uh, and oftentimes at board meetings that I've attended in the past, you know, there aren't usually a lot of people who aren't staff or directors that actually go to those things. Um, and, uh, you know, this now the members meeting is specifically for members, whereas the board meeting members can attend that, but uh, it's not necessarily for members. They don't really have a specific role in the board meetings. They have a uh, more of an active role in the members meeting. So we'll see yeah. if that draws uh, more NRA members in. But uh, honestly, in the even the even the emergency board meeting where they met to discuss the bankruptcy filing, because, uh, you know, Wayne LaPierre had filed the bankruptcy uh, unilaterally without telling the board about it beforehand, without notifying them or getting their approval. So they, after that happened, they met in an emergency meeting to go over whether or not they wanted to, you know, I guess back this play and, and uh, approve the, the filing or not, and which they ended up doing. Uh, again, overwhelmingly of the member of the board members who showed up. Now, most right. I think it was about forty members, uh, give or take, who showed up to that meeting out of the seventy six who were on the board. And this is a emergency board meeting about yeah. the group's bankruptcy, so it sort of give you some insight into how popular these meetings are, even with the actual board of directors who have sure. a fiduciary responsibility to the organization, which means they could be held personally liable for decisions that the group makes, um, in theory, at least. And, uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see where that goes and how many people show up and whether they do, whether there's any real big news that comes out of it. Cause oftentimes the board meetings, there's not like big news that, that comes out of these things. Uh, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to see, I'll, I'll be there in person to, uh, to report on what goes on. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, the other interesting thing in that analysis, that uh, that filing that they did this week uh, in court uh, in New York, that the NRA as an entity filed, is that it, it put some distance between itself and Wayne LaPierre and these other executives who've been named uh, in this suit by essentially saying uh, they um, aren't <laughs> accused of enriching the NRA, they're accused of enriching themselves. Uh, and so that even if, and that's an important caveat, I talk, I did a whole analysis piece on this that's available for the members where I get more in depth on, on you know, what this filing means and what these arguments, what they're actually saying in this argument. But, uh, you know, one of the key phrases here is even if. So they're not admitting that Wayne uh, or any of the other accused executives did anything wrong necessarily. Um, they're not admitting that the attorney general is correct in her allegations against these executives. What they're saying is that even if that were the case, right, even if the court holds that these executives did commit, uh, you know, the, these various uh, crimes or, uh, you know, diverted these funds towards their own personal expenses, uh, that wouldn't necessarily implicate the NRA as an organization and wouldn't be a good justification for shutting down the entire 5 million member group, um, which is something that critics have, uh, you know, essentially said that the NRA's lawyers should be arguing. Uh, you know, Frank Tate, who's trying to intervene in the case as just a regular NRA member, 
has been critical of, of the uh, legal representation from the Brewer firm. Um, and this has been one of the criticisms that they, they aren't representing the NRA well enough uh, when it comes to points where the NRA's interests differ from what Wayne LaPierre's interests are, you know, in, in court. And so here you have them doing that, you know, making that, that argument sort of a due diligence kind of thing. Like, hey, even if you find that Wayne or, or Josh Powell or, or Woody Phillips, the former treasurer, like, even if you find that they did something wrong, doesn't mean that what they did wrong should lead to the end of the NRA right. as, an, as an institution. So that that's interesting. Uh, and it's the first time they've done this. They've made this argument. But I don't, I don't know that it means, you know, Wayne's on his way out or anything like that. I'm sure some people will, will interpret it that way. But I, I kind of doubt that that is the actual takeaway from this. It's more of a due diligence sort of thing in my mind. But uh, people can read more on that uh, if they're members, right, if they join, uh, which, again, which you should, you should be. do that. You should join. Yes. Uh, we have a monthly membership, uh, $10 a month or $100 for a year. So you get two months off with the annual. Uh, and then there's also a lifetime membership. If you want to help the uh, the reload grow, if you want to help it sustain it, you you believe in, in this sober, serious approach to journalism, uh, uh, informed approach to gun reporting, you know, that's that's the best way to provide for the future of this publication. We are a hundred percent reader funded, uh, as things stand now. And, and, uh, we are completely independent of any gun group or any corporation or anything else. Uh, so if you want to help us continue our reporting, that's, that's how you can do it. Speaking of which we have another story that hasn't gotten any real attention that, uh, that you wrote, uh, this week, Jake on California, they've passed a new law. What, what does the law do? Yeah, so uh, it was kind of a last-minute law that they passed at the end of their legislative session. It was uh, in a budget bill, actually. Um, but what the, the law stipulates is that um, all transactions of ammunition, firearm parts, basically any firearm transaction, because they're already registered in the state of California, well, the California DOJ is now responsible for sharing that information with a newly established gun violence research center at the University of California, Davis. So that means that you know, people that purchase ammunition, you go and you do your background check, give your name, your address, <clears throat> all types of personal information. Well, all of that will now be available to gun violence researchers at UC Davis. And the law stipulates it can go to any other accredited uh, higher education institution. So theoretically, right, that could yeah. be any college in the country could have any your personal information. That's that's accredited by the Department of Education could get right. this information, could request it. And it's basically all of gun owners in California's personal information, like their name, their date of birth, their their address, their phone numbers, right. like everything. It's uh, a big deal. Every possible thing. And uh, it's really remarkable because this was not something that got a lot of attention uh, in the lead up to it passing. Right. And hasn't gotten a lot. the governor signed it yesterday uh, yesterday as of the recording of this so uh, mm -hmm. Thursday and I, you know it, it's remarkable to me like that's yeah. that's a lot of information for a lot of people and they didn't do anything wrong either these are just people who've legally bought guns in California or ammunition right uh, you'd and now you'd also uh, 
uh, like gun parts too uh, are on the list Correct. too. Correct. Yeah. What they call firearm precursor parts. So your, your receivers, your slides, anything that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can use to build a gun. Now, anytime you buy any of those individual pieces, your information will be shared with these uh, research institutions, which is interesting. Like you said, you would expect, you know, gun groups to be all over this. You'd expect gun outlets to be all over this. You would even expect and privacy maybe, advocates. Yes. Too. Civil liberties uh, uh, places you would expect to be all over this because this is a big, you know, breach of privacy. You're sharing personal information for people purchasing lawful goods um, yeah. for to institutions all across the country. So yeah, it's a, it's a big yeah, law. Any college basically is from, from the way that the law is written, sure. they, could, they could send this to any college in the country who asked for it. Uh, and I mean, it would be, it'd be pretty remarkable enough if it was just this one center at UC Davis, but, but it, it's literally any college or university in the entire country. Uh, and I, they don't, it doesn't appear that there's any sort of, they, they have some protections on, you know, the, the, the researchers can't republish the information under the law, I suppose. Correct. Yeah. Uh, when they publish anything, it can't include the personal identifying information. Um, so that's the only stipulation that protects people's identities, but yeah. And, and I don't, there doesn't seem to be any sort of mechanism in the law for how these, th how th this information is going to be kept confidential when it's being shared right. across the country with every, with every college or university who asks for it. Well, and we've uh, seen in know, other so cases, there's gun a lot owners, of questions to be answered there. We've seen in other instances, you know, in England, a big story broke a, a couple weeks ago where their entire gun owners registry got leaked somehow to the media. So we've seen it happen time and time again, even when things are supposed to be kept private, they can still get out. There's still privacy concerns. So, yeah, I believe this, uh, uh, there was a newspaper in New York who published the addresses of all the gun owners in, in its, uh, area. Uh, you know, and it's just remarkably, uh, uh, unfair, I think to people who are, have done nothing wrong there. These sure. are, you're talking about people who have gone through the legal process of buying right. a gun or ammunition in California, right? Not, not people with criminal records or anything like that. You're not, they're not sharing criminal records. They're just sharing every, they're identifying information of everyone who's legally bought a gun in the state. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes if if gun control if the the gun rights groups out in California file suit um, and where this ends up and how it, it interacts with the state's privacy uh, you know protections that exist uh, in California. I believe there's even a constitutional amendment about privacy there. So yep. uh, Article One we'll in the state see. constitution. Yeah, we'll have to see where that w w how this plays out. But there is also another. Another California uh, development this week in, in San Diego, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, so yesterday, as recording this podcast, so Thursday, uh, San Diego, the San Diego mayor signed into law an ordinance that bans ghost guns, um, which for their purposes is any unserialized receiver or an unserialized firearm um, is automatically... And this goes... This goes further than the state law that they've instituted Correct. recently, right? So this completely bans the possession and sale of any of that, whereas the state law, you can still purchase them, but it just requires that you register it and get a serial number with the state Department of Justice. So this mm -hmm. you know, city ordinance goes further than that. That makes it a misdemeanor, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and that actually dovetails well with uh, the interview we've got coming up here. As I mentioned earlier, the, the head of San Diego County uh, gun owners is is on with us to talk a little bit about local activism, uh, their approach to activism, which I think is, is fairly unique uh, from some 
uh, you know, the way that other groups have operated and, and some of the successes that they've had, even in a place like San Diego, California, which uh, is obviously very deep blue and uh, is, is, their mayor is uh, pa passing his own gun ordinances. Um, so, uh, you know, we're going to move over to that now, actually, and uh, take it away, me in the future slash past when I actually recorded this interview. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Wendy uh, Hoffman of the San Diego County Gun Owners uh, group, which uh, has done a lot of good work out in San Diego, California. Uh, Wendy, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself for, for listeners who might not have uh, heard of you or your group before? Sure, I'm the CEO of San Diego County Gun Owners. We're a political action committee focused on Second Amendment rights just at the city and county level. Um, I'm also the program director for our women's mentorship program called Not Me. Um, we have a couple of chapters throughout the state. We have uh, one in San Diego, one in Riverside County, and one in Orange County. Um, I'm also an instructor, a uh, you know NRA certified, and a couple of other um, certification processes as well. And I've been doing that for about uh, seven or eight years now. Wow, wonderful. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more, a little bit more about the Not Me program? How many women have been involved? Uh, over the last few years here, what what is the goal uh, and how, how are you guys carrying that out? Sure. So uh, about a little over two years ago, I created this program. It's a women's one-on-one -on -one mentorship program. The idea is that we create a space for women to be able to ask all the questions that anybody might have about becoming a gun owner, about purchasing and selecting a firearm, about getting the right kind of training, and about getting a, a concealed carry permit. So a lot of this was built on my own experiences becoming a gun owner. Uh, when I first got into guns, I was pretty much the only gun owner I knew. So I didn't know where to ask questions. Um, you know, going on Google has very hit or miss results. Right. Um, sometimes they're accurate. Sometimes <laughs> you get a bunch of weird answers. Um, and even like going to gun shops, I would get really good information or I would get really condescending information or, you know, anywhere in between. So my idea was to pair up experienced female gun owners who have gone through the process already and uh, they help out someone who is just starting to explore gun ownership. So it might be answering questions about what kind of gun to pick, why um, a semi-automatic versus a revolver, a small gun versus a big gun, what caliber, um, where can I find training, do I want to go get training with the Navy SEAL or do I, um, do I need to you know, fly to Arizona and spend $1,000 on a gun sight class? You know, that kind of stuff, those are, um, really basic questions that take a lot of time to explore and realize what is good information and what is bad. So we um, just wanna be able to provide a comfortable environment for women to ask that, those questions for women who have already gone through that. Absolutely, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so uh, you said you've had 500 uh, women go through this program, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, and, so in San Diego, it's just we're just about to hit 500, and then we've also got a, a handful in Orange County and a handful in Riverside. 
And so what is, uh, why do you think it's been so successful? I guess it's that, that uh, approach that uh, is a bit unique compared to, uh, you know, a lot of these other programs that, that you, you discussed. Um, do, you, do you think there's a certain, um, I guess, benefit to having women teaching women uh, that, that sort of maybe lowers some of the barrier for entry for a lot of women? Uh, is, I think is that is that something that comes across or that you notice when you're doing these things? Absolutely. I think that's a really big part of it, that um, one of the things that I hear all the time from brand new female gun owners is that they don't want to be the only woman in the room. They don't want to be um, by themselves. They don't want to look like they have no idea what they're talking about when they go to a gun class. Mm. And that's a very normal you know, a normal response for people, but for a woman to step out of the comfort zone and step into a firearms industry, it's super intimidating. And to be able to lower that bar just a little bit has helped a lot. Um, the other thing is obviously the, the environment over the last two years has been really wild. It's been a crazy roller coaster. And a lot of people who have who were on the fence about gun ownership are now really really interested about buying a gun yeah so you've you've experienced that surge as well in in your training programs where you've seen more more people coming in uh to get training over the last uh, you know year and a half because when the pandemic started back in you know march 2020 and there was the rioting and there's food shortages and all these things that we had to deal with um that led to a lot of gun uh purchases but you're, you've also seen it lead to a lot of people interested in, in gun training as well. Very much. Um, we also had the unique experience of having a riot here in San Diego County. Um, I live just a couple miles from where uh, a very large riot occurred. Um, the police department was stormed. City Hall was broken into. They uh, These rioters broke into every store inside a shopping center. They set a couple of buildings on fire, you know, especially the people who lived near there and also even people who live in the county but didn't live near there, they never thought that this would happen in their backyard. And so that made a lot of people realize, hey, I need to be able to defend myself. There were people calling the police and they were just like, I'm sorry, we can't help you right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sure that would motivate quite a few people uh, to want to, I guess, do what they can to protect themselves at that point. Um, and then, I, you know, you're, you're Asian American as, as well, obviously, and uh, there have been an, certainly an increase in hate crimes uh, directed towards Asian Americans. Have you noticed uh, that community coming out to train uh, more as well? As, as an overall community, yes, I would say so. Um, mm -hmm. In San Diego specifically and through our program, um, I think it probably reflects what's going on in the rest of the country. Um, not a huge increase here specifically in San Diego, but there's okay. definitely a very big concern about uh, personal safety for Asian Americans. Sure, sure, certainly. Um, and I know there have been a couple of uh, Asian American groups that have come on to this, gun, gun rights groups that have come onto the scene lately as well mm -hmm. uh, for, for that general um, movement towards uh, gun ownership in, in the Asian American community, but uh, but uh, what other thing that's interesting? You guys were featured uh, in the Wall Street Journal's uh, recent piece where they talked about a study that indicates uh, fifty percent of new gun owners are, are women, which is a huge increase. 
um, over what has traditionally been the case uh, with gun ownership in America. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, what that means going forward, I think, for the gun industry, for gun, uh, the gun owning community, for, I mean, America generally? What, what does this new trend uh, say, I think, uh, you know, about, about where we're headed? I think it says that women are starting to be more involved in decisions about home defense. Um, I think in a traditional household, it's typically the man's role to take care of a defensive plan, for example. But now the women are seeing what's going on across the country and really taking charge and ownership of being able to participate in that home defense plan. Um, not only that, because uh, a lot of the women that I work with are women who, for example, um, the, the husbands uh, are, are active duty military or they're law enforcement or maybe they just have a, a really busy work schedule and so the woman is home by herself a lot. And so in that situation, she's the one who's going to need to be able to protect herself with a firearm at home. The trajectory for the, the industry, I think, um, being able to focus on women as a legitimate demographic of customers, it's been getting a lot better over the last couple of years, but I think that um, the industry is going to really need to be able to step it up over the next five years, for example. Mm. Um, you know, there was a, a trend for a while, I think the nickname was to pink it and shrink it. <laughs> and, you know, yes. that only goes so far. Um, shrinking it does not make it easier to shoot. It makes it yeah. harder to shoot. Right. Um, <laughs> That's a common misconception, right? As exactly. And it, gun it, being smaller means it's easier or it's for women or something. And that's really it, but not it true. But it doesn't. Yeah. It makes it harder and more uncomfortable and harder to handle. Yes. So, the, the smaller the gun, the less mass, the more recoil you get. Exactly. So we are seeing a lot more female-friendly guns. Um, you know, like for example, the EZ, which is mm. the, the Smith and Wesson M&P EZ, which has uh, got a lot easier slide to rack, um, more guns that are designed for the ergonomics for women's hands. Yeah. Those kinds of things, uh, they've been getting better. Now, the problem, of course, here in California is that we have a roster of handguns approved for sale and there haven't been any new guns added on that in many, many years. So we don't have access to any of these new guns, which is, I think, a really big problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, certainly. And, you know, I've, I've uh, handled the easy and I kind of wonder why <laughs> they don't apply that technology to more guns. I mean, that, the slide on that gun. Uh, is remarkable in, in how easy it is to manipulate. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people, I mean, obviously it's, it's beneficial to women um, who are, you know, uh, on average smaller than, than men. Um, but I just feel like it's a, it's an advantage for almost anyone. Like uh, I'm yeah. not sure what the downside is to that slide. I'm not aware of any, frankly, uh, to that design that they've incorporated into that gun. But uh, the upside seems very obvious, right? And that yeah. it's much easier to rack, which I is would agree. an advantage to everyone. But, but yeah, so, so you want to see more, more innovations along those lines, right? You, you want to see more guns uh, adapted to um, 
or designed with women in mind, right? Uh, uh, what what, yeah. what other sorts of uh, uh, changes or advancements would, do you want to see from either the industry or the, perhaps the gun rights movement um, as a whole? Like what, what are some things that you think could be done to make gun ownership more appealing to women than, than it's already becoming uh, and political activism uh, more inviting to, to female gun owners? Wow, that's a that's a loaded question. I think. Where the, do you think that things are already going well in that direction? I mean, I, you know, I don't want to. I don't, <laughs> don't yeah. want to draw conclusions, right? Well, I think within the industry, I think it's they're doing a really good job of moving in that direction of normalizing gun ownership and um, moving towards marketing that is more appropriate towards uh, both men and women. You know, there's less bikinis and and more men and fully dressed women in the uh, in the advertisements um, but I think that being accessible and relatable in media is going to be the biggest struggle um, now if I go pick up a gun magazine it's full of guns and that is the point of the magazine I get that uh, but it's also really intimidating for a woman who is just just starting to um, explore gun ownership. So I think the introductory level uh, education as an industry overall, there are a lot of resources, but I, I feel like depending on where you are, it's not as accessible. And that's, that's basically the basis for our program because we, uh, you know, it's all free. All of our ambassadors who are the mentors, we call them ambassadors, they're all volunteers and all they're doing is just sharing some experience that they've already gone through and you know, creating this comfortable space where they can refer them to reliable resources. So I personally would love to see this program all over the country. It's super easy to implement. It, you know, it's all volunteer based and being able to create that you know, low bar of entry, like we were talking about earlier, is is such a key to getting more people, especially more women, involved in the industry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and as far as the political activism side of things goes, um, you know, you guys have been uh, fairly active. I, uh, your mayor there in San Diego just uh, recently signed a actually the day that we're filming this the, he signed a ghost gun uh, ban or so-called you know ghost gun it, I guess it would uh, uh, make it a, a misdemeanor to possess a an unfinished firearm frame or receiver if it doesn't have a, a serial number engraved into it um, you know, this is part of a larger effort both nationally and specifically in California where they've passed laws requiring people to register their homemade firearms um, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, your group is obviously in an area of the country that is uh, fairly hostile towards gun owners. Obviously, you mentioned earlier the the red the um, the roster, the handgun yep. roster. You can only own handguns that are approved by the state as safe, uh, which they haven't updated the list in years. Even though guns now are uh, oftentimes much safer than some of the guns on the list in in a practical sense of uh, their actual Absolutely. operation yeah. uh, and obviously they allow police officers to carry 
some of these unsafe, I guess, presumably unsafe firearms <laughs> um, that they won't let civilians uh, purchase or, or own. Um, but uh, so what what is your activism for your group looked like? Um, what what are you doing uh, to try and affect change in, in this area of the country that it is is uh you know relatively hostile to what your goals are so the ghost gun ban is a really good example of how the the laws that are being created here in california and at the local level are uh are spreading throughout the country um a lot of the anti-gun legislation that is in the senate and the house right now they're all based on ideas that started here in California. Um, so it's really important to be able to make change at a local level. So we only work on city level and county level politics. Um, and I think it's really important to focus at that level because the politicians that are at the state level and federal level I would say the vast majority of them started at some sort of city council or even a school board or a water board. Um, they're the ones who are going to move to office and make decisions about firearms and make laws like the roster that make no sense to anyone who knows anything about guns. So it's really important to get involved at the local level. What our organization does is um, we organize the Second Amendment community. We create a voice for the average gun owner. Um, we're not all, you know, camo-wearing middle-aged white guys who are hunting. Although, you know, we have members that do that. Sure. Uh, but we're all average gun owners and we're all law-abiding citizens who just want to be able to protect ourselves. Um, so one example is we placed political pressure on the sheriff uh, about five years ago. He was running for re-election and he was previously not issuing CCWs. Mm -hmm. So in our, in our county, we had about 3.4 million residents. We had just over a thousand permits at the time. That's a very small number for how big of a county we are. Right. Um, but through several channels of political pressure, through going after his donors, holding up endorsements, um, telling the media that he has the ultimate authority to decide when and where to issue, uh, we endorsed his opponent, who was an openly gay Democrat, who said that he would issue CCWs for self-defense. So he's running against an openly gay pro-gun Democrat. And... You know, all of this kind of came together um, and he ultimately changed his mind. He turned around his CCW policy 180 degrees. Um, previously, they were turning people away before people could even apply. And now the clerks are welcoming people in, helping them modify their applications to make sure that they get approved. Um, they have increased their staff. They have added uh, software to make the process quicker, um, you know, over the last five years, we've seen a quadruple in the number of permits that have been issued. Wow. Yeah, no, that's very impressive. I mean, because obviously most of the time in California, uh, you're relying on things like uh, legal cases to mm -hmm. win back some of these rights uh, that have been restricted over the years, uh, either at the county or the state level. 
Um, and, you know, there was a famous case in California, Peruta, uh, that almost made it to the Supreme Court that dealt with California's uh, May issue ban. And actually, of course, right now there is a case in front of the New York, uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court about New York's May issue law, which is fairly similar to California. So, uh, you know, you might you might end up having another court case help uh, some backup there soon. Um, but uh, but it is interesting to see uh, how this sort of uh, local activism that you guys have, have put together there in, in San Diego has had a, a real world impact on, uh, you know, a, a sheriff that had been uh, restrictive in how he treated uh, applicants for concealed carry law uh, permits uh, and, and now has changed his point of view or his, his practice because of your local activism focused on um, it's you know it sounds like a uh, an approach that's that's zeroed in specifically and only on gun policy, uh, which I think is interesting just because of uh, some of the ways that other gun rights groups uh, have um, taken a more holistic approach, I guess to to uh, activism and um, perhaps they're not uh, getting involved legally or with money in other issues, but they're oftentimes identifying uh, non-gun issues with gun ownership, uh, if that makes sense. It's sort of an identity approach, you know, trying to get people more involved in their uh, fight by appealing to their uh, other parts of their politics, you know, for their core demographic of, uh, you know, who, who they want to become activists. So they might, uh, you know, appeal to somebody's... Um, uh, you know, f country fandom or something of country music fandom uh, or, or whatever, um, in addition to their their desire to to uh, protect gun rights. Whereas, like, uh, you know, they, they might not be as interested in endorsing a, a Democrat who is, you know, gay or or who uh, supports all a number of different issues that don't have anything to do with guns, but don't line up with what a lot of. Uh, your traditional gun owners believe in. Um, it sounds like you've taken a, a bit of a different approach in just laser focusing on the issue. And that had a real impact. Like, is that a fair assessment of, of how uh, you guys went about doing things? And do you see it as a um, alternative approach that's been successful for you? I think it's actually one of the keys to our success is that all we focus on is the second amendment. We don't focus on any other issues. Um, being able to be relatable about just that one issue allows us to not get involved in any of the other issues um, because all we care about as an organization is the Second Amendment. Um, interestingly, though, that Peruta case you just mentioned, that was actually a case against our sheriff, that same sheriff who denied permits for 10 years. Mm. Um, and, you so know, the legal case didn't work. Right? No, it didn't. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it put pressure on, but it, it didn't. Uh, the legal case didn't come out in your favor. Um, That's correct. But you were able to, anyway, through local activism, change his position. Yeah, and I, it just shows that while litigation is a, a crucial part of any activism plan, that it it can't be the end all and be all. It took ten years in court for Gore, for Sheriff Gore to actually win in court. 
And so that was 10 years in court with no favorable result. Mm. So we can't rely on litigation. Um, we have to be able to make change at the local level and not rely on a court case, which could take upwards of 10 years. Yeah. No, that being I mean, said, that... we are involved in litigation, um, but sure, it, it can't be yeah, the I only mean, It's thing. not to say that court cases aren't important. And like I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there is a Supreme Court case. on. They have yep. finally taken up a, a May, May issue gun carry uh, case. Yes. May issue, for anyone who's listening that doesn't necessarily know, is where uh, essentially government officials like the, the county sheriff have discretion over whether or not they want to issue a permit, even if a person has passed the hurdles in the law. So even if they've passed the background check and completed the training that's required, they can still be denied if the local government official does not, you know, the one who's in charge of issuing permits doesn't believe they have a good reason to uh, to have a permit or they can, in New York's case, you know, the laws are a little different. New York has a, they'll issue you a permit, but then they'll say you can only use it in certain circumstances, uh, which don't apply to most public areas. Um, uh, and so, uh, um, you know, you, you guys are a really interesting case to me because uh, I think a lot of the new gun owners who've uh, come into the fold over the last year and a half, all these, you know, if NSSF's estimates are to be believed, it's, you know, something like um, 12, almost 12 million new gun owners uh, in the past year and a half. I, you know, I wonder uh, what the effect of that is going to be. And I don't think it's going to be that people are going to suddenly switch from being, uh, you know, party line Democrat voters to party line Republican voters, even if they start to change their mind on guns. And that's why this approach that you're talking about here uh, and the success of it uh, is intriguing to me because I feel like that's the more realistic expectation for how new gun owners who have traditionally voted for Democrats or uh, not traditionally been, you know, Republican voters, uh, that doesn't, obviously doesn't necessarily mean they're party line Democratic voters, but uh, the, that's a more realistic view of how they can, they will have an impact long term on the politics of guns. Uh, and I, I think the way that your group has approached this issue with concealed carry permits in San Diego um, and the success that you had uh, is real, really a shining example of that. Uh, or like it really shows what's possible uh, for these, these kind of new gunners and how you, uh, I guess, bring them into uh, the gun rights community uh, and don't ex necessarily expect them to become you know, a party line, hardcore uh, uh, Republican voter or, uh, you know, even NRA member or whatever, um, there's still a, a significant role that they can play uh, or that they will play in affecting gun politics by moving perhaps the Democratic Party back towards uh, more uh, um, uh, pro-gun policies than they would like. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Do you think that's a realistic view uh, that I just put out there? Is that something that you've taken away from your experience? I think that with gun ownership, it is something that people are so passionate about that they tend to be 
um, that it tends to be a deciding factor. So if there is someone who they don't really have an opinion about between you know two candidates, for example, if one of them is pro-gun and one of them isn't, they're going to vote for the pro-gun um, pro-gun candidate. So there's there's enough either single issue voters or indifferent voters who care a little bit about guns that I think it does make a really big difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, because I think the expectation, uh, you know, the, was, oh, well, there's all these new gun owners. So, uh, you know, Joe Biden is very um, uh, anti-gun or he's very, he wants to enact a lot of new gun control and tr uh, Donald Trump is, is uh, you know, rhetorically is very pro-gun and and he's endorsed by the NRA and, you know, all this stuff. So clearly all those new gun owners are going to immediately vote for Donald Trump and he's going to win the election. Uh, or you could replace any of these candidates um, uh, in any race. And, uh, you know, I don't think it it works quite that way. Mm -hmm. One, I think it takes a while for someone who, who especially in uh, the midst of chaos, who's concerned about their safety, goes out and buys a gun. They're not immediately thinking about politics. Uh, yeah. of that decision, you know, within the next month or two of, it, of doing it. Uh, so it takes time. And then uh, not all of those people will become single issue gun voters or uh, will uh, just because they change their mind on guns will change their mind on all of the litany of other issues that people make up their minds uh, on when it comes to voting for candidates. But it just seems to me that probably enough of them will change their point of view on the gun issue in particular, that it could have an effect not just on Republicans beating Democrats, but on Democrats changing their positions on guns like you've been able to uh, uh, um, uh, have happen with the sheriff in San Diego County. Uh, like that just seems to me like a more realistic um, uh, view of the long term effect of these these new gun owners. Uh, and and someone like you and what your organization is doing uh, are kind of the conduits for that that action to take somebody who just bought a gun because they were worried about their uh, home getting broken into during the riot in San Diego um, and, and taking them to be more of a, a regular uh, user of their gun, you know, getting mm -hmm. training, going to the range, making some fr other friends who own guns uh, and then from there, moving perhaps into more uh, of the activism side of things, you know, working at the county level to, uh, you know, endorse this sheriff candidate over this sheriff candidate because he has a better policy on issuing concealed carry licenses. Uh, like that seems like the a more natural and realistic progression for a new gun owner who wasn't previously voting on gun rights to become somebody who is voting on gun rights. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the other thing there too is that as they become new gun owners, they realize that the narrative about how easy it is to get a gun and all of the loopholes that exist, mm. I think they realize that these, those don't really exist. They're not right. really there. It is really hard to get a gun in California. Right. Um, the And the average non-gun owner probably believes that our government isn't trying to take away our guns. But then you really get more into learning about how many gun laws there are and how difficult it is to be a lawful gun owner in California. 
then they start seeing, okay, there are so many laws that are only there for the purpose of making it harder to become a law-abiding gun owner. So, you know, like the roster, for example, it's just the way that it's written right now, it's impossible to have any new guns added to the roster. So there's no good reason to have this roster anymore. You're not limiting the sale of guns that are safe, quote unquote, to Californians. What you're doing is is keeping us from being able to have access to the technology that's been developed over the last 15 years. Does that make us safer? Because I don't think it does. I think it actually makes us less safe. We're limited to the amount of guns that we have access to. A, a woman with small hands of small stature in California who wants a gun for concealed carry has like two options on the roster. And that's not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think those are very legitimate complaints <laughs> that you have there. And and I, I imagine you will continue to uh, push forward on, on changing things in San Diego County and California at large. Uh, if, if somebody wants to get involved uh, with your group, how can they do that? What's the best way? We have lots of opportunities. Um, you can check out our website. It's sandiegocountygunowners.com. Uh, you can find all of our social media platforms there, sign up for our email newsletter. Um, we do new shooter events. We have our women's mentoring program. We promote the organization at gun shops all over the county. Um, there are definitely tons of ways to get involved in a really easy way. Um, and, you know, you can donate time or you can donate money as well. So we're a membership-based organization. Uh, you can contribute uh, $10 a month is, is our basic level of membership. And that just helps make sure that we have uh, paid full-time staff who are working on Second Amendment rights all the time at the local level. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, and giving us your time. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation, and I hope you'll come back again uh, in the future to, to update us. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. I'm here with Reload member Brian Stubbe to do the new episode of the segment that I really enjoy doing a lot, actually, where we meet some of the Reload members and find out who they are, what they like, what their background is, how they got into guns, why they subscribe to the Reload, that sort of thing. want to really kind of uh, take a look at our own community of members. And uh, so, yeah, Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed this segment. And um, I thought it was really cool that I had a chance to come on and talk too. Um, I'm kind of new to the firearms community. I got into it about three years ago uh, as an activity to do with my um, father-in-law. Oh. And um, I found it was more important too to me now that I had, I moved from the city into the suburbs and felt a little more responsibility to take, um, to protect my house and my family. Oh, okay. So, uh, so what, was your first gun? What was your first shooting experience? It was, you said it was only a couple of years ago, right? When you, you started yes. sort of like a family building uh, exercise kind of deal. What, so what did you, uh, what did you do? So uh, actually my brother-in-law, I used his, I think, Glock 34 for my first experience at a range. Mm. Um, so that was like a longer pistol. 
easier to shoot. And then I think my first one ended up being a CZ P10C nine millimeter pistol. Um, and that's still actually my favorite handgun. It's a really nice trigger, um, easy yeah. to shoot. Do you have your own guns now? Yeah, yeah. So uh, actually, last year I ended up buying a few different ones. I, I bought a rifle, um, like a AR type rifle, and a um, bolt action rifle as well, and then a, a smaller pistol for everyday carry because um, I'm five nine. I'm like 150 pounds, so it's hard for me to hide a full size one with uh, the clothes I wear. Sure. Well, I mean, I'm six one and like two fifty five, and uh, it's I still carry a subcompact nine millimeter. So nice, nice. <laughs> no shame there. Just uh, you know, easier uh, to conceal with, with regardless of what you're wearing. You know, um, especially with the right kind of holster and setup. But uh, so so that's pretty fast transition. You went from not uh, had you ever shot before? You know, a couple of years ago, or was that really your first time even shooting at all? I think once in Las Vegas for a bachelor party trip, we went somewhere where you could shoot like full auto. Um, nice. um, yeah. And that was, it, it, that was it until, you know, three years ago. Yeah. Those places are fun. I've, I've been to a bunch of those, but, um, I have to go again now that I know something about firearms. Cause back then it was just like quick and intense experience. And now I think I'll get more out of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are great. And, and honestly, I've, I've always thought those were <laughs> counterintuitively a, really good way to introduce somebody to oh. shooting if they don't have um like if you don't have somebody who's uh like a experienced shooter that can teach you i mean obviously you go to a trainer and that's ideal yeah but otherwise like if you just want to try out shooting and you don't have someone to go with those attraction places in vegas or orlando there's there's a lot of them around are a pretty good way to get started because one they they have uh, not just a range safety officer watching everyone shoot, but they have an individual range safety officer for every group, and they they will walk you through the process of shooting and supervise you while you do it. So uh, that's safer than if you just tried to go to a range by yourself and rent a gun uh, without any assistance and you've never shot before. You know, obviously that can be a very <laughs> irresponsible thing to do. So, yeah, and, and then on top of that, you also get the experience of uh, shooting full auto, which is exhilarating and, and fun um, for most people. And so you can have that range of experience uh, in a relatively, you know, a very safe environment um, compared to some of the alternatives for first time shooters who don't have somebody who can take them shooting. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you went from, uh, you know, doing the attraction, you know, stuff at, in Vegas to, uh, you know, shooting for the first time with your father-in-law to now you carry a, a firearm. That's pretty, yeah. uh, you know, quick transition over just a couple of years. Uh, not, not that that's uncommon, but, uh, you know, I, I find that interesting. So you've made that jump from just getting into shooting as something to do with your family. And now it's something that you also... Uh, rely on for self-protection to the point where you, you actually got a permit and you carry a gun on you, uh, you know, on your person uh, when you're out in public or at least, you know, so I, I don't know, yeah. you, you don't need to disclose your, your full uh, routine or anything, but, but that's just an interesting um, uh, progression there. Yeah. And I remember when my father-in-law first said he was going to get a permit to carry, I was like, why, why would you ever need to? It's just seems kind of scary and crazy. And then a few right. months later I got my own permit and, um, what helped a lot also was watching um, videos on YouTube, like Active Self-Protection is a great channel teaching yes, about... Great, um, great podcast too, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which features, I, I, which, which I guess features you. <laughs> yeah. But, 
but yeah. which is a great crossover, a great a great uh, partnership there. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely though. That that that's an interesting too because that's kind of a new resource over the last decade or so having real uh, quality uh advice and training available online uh you know as a resource in addition to uh you know what you can get in person at a range um obviously it's yeah. not a replacement necessarily for in-person training but but it's a, a new resource that i think a lot of new shooters uh like yourself uh have gotten into it and then that i personally um, have used a lot uh, myself as well, including specifically active self-protection, because that gives you a really good insight into the reality of uh, armed self-defense and the reality of the dangers that exist in the world, um, you know, every day for everyone. So uh, that, that's really cool. So, so you started, you know, you started shooting, you started doing some research online, watching active self-protection videos, uh, and that changed your mind from what I think is a very common, honestly, uh, a view of, of carrying a gun every day, which is, you know, why would you need to do that? Why would you like, what do you need a gun for when you go into the grocery store? Right? Like that's how I think most people approach the concept of, of gun carry, um, and changed your perspective towards, uh, one of maybe preparedness, even though, uh, you know, a violent event might be rare. It's not impossible. Yeah. Is, is that, an accurate, you know, assessment of how things went for you? Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, yeah. And just seeing what can happen to people like everyday people in everyday circumstances. Um, and then, you know, it also taught me about carrying one in the chamber, which took some time for me to feel comfortable with. Sure. But if you're in a circumstance where your life is in danger or someone's life is in danger, you don't want to have to take that extra time to, to chamber around. Um, yeah. And then also, I found that channel very helpful and you know, similar videos, very helpful for um, understanding the complexities legally um, that you need to know when you're carrying, uh, mm -hmm. like when it's, it's not dedicated to legal issues, but um, whether or not you're allowed to take, to, um, to pull your, your gun in a way that's not brandishing or is brandishing, um, there's important things to know there. Um, and right. there are a lot of cases uh, kind of famous ones lately, like the Ahmad Arbery case, and then also the McCloskeys in St. Louis. Um, if you look at it in different situations or different ways, you might think like one or the other party might be okay or allowed but um, to do what they were doing, but you need to know like the full context. Um, and and uh, as a, a carrier, you need to be aware of all the complexities there so you don't screw yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's like a duty that you have to be responsible when you're carrying a firearm, right. uh, you know, in public, it, it's a, it's not a toy obviously. And so you need to understand the, the responsibilities that come along with, with that, uh, in addition to the rights that you have to, to exercise, uh, uh, that ability. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I find that really interesting. So, so what, uh, as well, you know, in addition to, to that stuff, so you got into the, you got into shooting, you got into learning more about concealed carry and, and, armed self-defense what what got you into more uh following gun news or gun politics subscribing to the reload what what was the the progression there yeah good question um it happened bit by bit i i probably found your you through um some of the national review um former colleagues potentially the colleagues of yours in the past um or just friends national review, yeah 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 um and just like I found that 
following individuals for news and content, uh, you can learn to trust them better or what they're, whether they're trustworthy or not. Uh, and, uh, you know, I found those people to be reliable to like tell, tell the facts truthfully and sure they'll have opinions, but, um, there won't be too much spin. And then, so that led me to you as someone potentially trustworthy and I've found you definitely to be the case. Um, and so I wanted to support, uh, that kind of content and it's also very useful to just follow. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think the, I said this a lot on the podcast, right? But, uh, and, and in my tweets, but really the, the members are what makes this whole thing possible. Um, you know, the, the reload is a hundred percent funded by members, uh, and it wouldn't, wouldn't be able to exist without them, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and so I think it is really key, um, that people who want to see more independent firearms journalism that's done in, in the with this serious approach that that I've tried to take, you know, I really do need their their help and their support. So yeah, uh, I'm always glad uh, uh, when somebody you know it makes that uh, commitment to to uh, support what what I'm doing with the reload and uh, and hopefully also get you know valuable insights in return. You know, uh, get value from, uh, you know, the, the exclusive posts and the Sunday newsletter that's exclusive for members and and the early access to the podcast and so forth. But but, uh, you know, uh, that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this segment is just to see what, you know, what is it that drove people to want to help create something like this or help sustain uh, and grow something like the reload. And so that that's really interesting. Is, is, and I think that's a mirrors my approach a lot to to um how i consume news which yeah. is less about what outlet somebody works for now obviously there's you know outliers here or like you know uh, infowars i'm not <laughs> i'm not going to take stuff that yeah. somebody's writing for if you write for infowars that's not going to be a, a good mark in my book of credibility but uh you know i find following the individual writers to be uh, more useful in this day and age than uh, just uh, judging off of what outlet they're publishing for, you know, within yeah. reason, right? And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's probably part of the reason why the reload can exist at all. Um, is that sort of new approach, or I don't know if it's new, but that that kind of approach yeah. uh, to journalism and to to vetting your sources, being able to follow what, uh, how their career has gone and whether you can judge their credibility and, and their, I think as a, as a consumer yeah. also, it's, um, it's something actually, and I, I enjoy finding, um, people doing good work that I can support. Um, I, I find it more meaningful than just, you know, buying a subscription to a, a newspaper or something. Yeah, that makes sense too. Right. I mean, uh, certainly your subscription has a much bigger impact on, whether or not the reload exists, then if you were to buy a subscription <laughs> to the New York Times or so, or the Washington Post or something, uh, so obviously, so certainly the uh, uh, individual impact is is much larger on a, on a publication like the reload. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I uh, again, I really appreciate uh, your support personally, and then uh, the support of the members generally, and and I hope to have a lot more members on in the future to do this segment. Because I really find it fascinating. It's interesting to talk to <clears throat> the actual uh, community that we're building here. So um, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, and yeah, 
I hope to have more more members on uh, like you very soon. Well, thank you for the work you do. Uh, awesome story on the ATF, and hopefully, uh, you know, many more to come. Hey, that's uh, your support makes our journalism possible. So, uh, you know, the members are just as responsible for the impact of our reporting as as I am. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks. All right, that's it for this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Remember, if you join, you get this podcast a day early, like all the other members. It's a big perk. It's wonderful. And in addition to that, you also get access exclusively to certain content like uh, my recent analysis piece on what the NRA putting distance between itself and Wayne LaPierre in a recent court filing actually means. Where is that going? Why did that happen? Find out if you subscribe and read the piece. Uh, anyway, I'll see you guys again on the next episode. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones, but none of them were ever mine.